Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Well, my name's Dustin. Like Joel said, I lead our college ministry here, and uh, it's an honor um, to be with you this morning. And um, we are in our second week of Advent, and uh, I, I really love Advent. I love this season, and as I've, as I've grown older, I've learned to appreciate more of what this season represents. Natalie did an incredible job last week. Anyone enjoy Natalie's message last week about the way? So, so good. Um, and today we're in our second week of Advent, and uh, I love Advent. Advent, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with this term, uh, Advent simply means coming or the appearing. And so when we are celebrating Advent, what we're celebrating is the coming of Jesus. But, but this is what I love about this season, is that it's not simply looking back to the coming of Jesus, but it's recognizing that God is always coming towards us, amen? amen. That his face is always turned towards us. And in this season, we recognize that light itself actually penetrated our darkness, that the God of the universe, he, he took on flesh and blood and he lived among us. I, I just meditate on truths like the creator of all things entered a womb that he created. Like how beautiful is that? He, he lived among people that he formed and fashioned. And ultimately when he, uh, at the fullness of time, redeemed the world, reconciled the world, he didn't do it from afar, but he did it from within. This is the beauty of Advent. It's, it's the revelation of Emmanuel, that God is with us. He was with us then. He's with us now. And he's closer to you in this room than you can imagine. And so this morning, as we talk through these truths that we're going to talk about, I just want us to sit with that truth that God is here, that he's present, that he's never left you. You may be in the room this morning feeling like God is distant, that he's far off from you. And I want you to know this morning that the God of the universe is in this room. He's present. And so I just want to pray before we jump in to the message this morning. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for Advent. We thank you for this season. We thank you that you came. We thank you that you identified with our brokenness, that you put on flesh and blood so that we could know that you understand us. And then you redeemed the world up close and personal. And this morning, God, we thank you for the beauty of your salvation. We thank you for the beauty of, of the gospel, of the kingdom, what you did and what you're doing in our lives. And we honor you for that this morning, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we are in our second week of Advent, and my assignment today is talk to you about truth. Tell your neighbor, the truth will set you free. The truth We'll set you free. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to look at one scripture here in verse 6, and then we'll jump in. John 14 in verse 6 says this, Jesus answered, and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Last week, Natalie taught us that Jesus is the way. I love how she used the illustration that Jesus is the journey, that he's the path. And this week, we're going to talk about Jesus, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many of you guys know that truth is important? And one of the things that I'm learning in a culture that propagates the message of finding your truth 
we need a revival of the truth. We, we have to understand what the truth is. As I was preparing this message, I spent some time reflecting just over the past few years and my young 29 years here on the earth. And what I've recognized is that the world we live in today is very different than the world we lived in five years ago, 10 years ago. For some of you in the room, you would maybe look back 30, 40 years and say, the world we live in today is very different. Am I right? We live in this different world. And um, one of the things that I've really spent some time just trying to understand specifically working with college students, um, I would say this, that even in the past two years, things have changed a lot. I mean, COVID really kind of did a lot to our world and our understanding of community and God and things like that. Um, But we live in what many people would identify specifically here in the West as as a postmodern or like a post-Christian culture. And what that means is, is here in the West, things that existed uh, 40 years ago may not be the norm anymore, especially here, um, like in Texas, we're in the Bible Belt, like everyone believes in God, um, like you could, you could meet the, you know, you, whatever you would call the worst of the worst, and they're like, amen, hallelujah, brother, right? Like everyone believes in God. And we kind of lived in this like, this kind of Christendom uh, idea where, where just everyone kind of believes in God. Well, we're kind of moving in culture away from that. And the majority of people um, really don't embrace this Christian worldview like we, we might hear in, in the church. And so postmodernism is kind of a reality that we all live in. There's a, a guy that I really like to read. His name is Mark Sayers. And he would give definition to postmodernism or post-Christian culture as this. He says, essentially, it's the kingdom without the king. It's, it's this reality that people want the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't want to submit to a Lord. And, and so postmodern culture, post-Christian culture kind of has this great vision for, for, for social ideas, and, and, and they kind of strive to create this utopian society where everything's good, and there's peace, and there's equality, and all of these things, all of these good things, but it simply doesn't acknowledge the giver of all of those things, which is Christ himself. And so we find ourselves in this place, and, and one of the things that I've noticed and I recognize through my own journey is, is I really believe that the only legitimate answer to the desires and questions within the heart of every human is an encounter with the truth. Because as Dana said this morning, the truth is not a concept. The truth is not a list of rules. It's not saying this is what I believe. The truth is a person. Jesus didn't say, I have the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And I'm the only way to the Father. And so at this kind of moment that we find ourselves in our culture, there's a lot of different buzzwords that we find. And one of the buzzwords that is used quite often today, I want to talk about this for a second, um, is the word deconstruction. Has anyone heard the word deconstruction? So it's kind of a common phrase that we use. Um, I'd love to talk to you about deconstruction for a moment. Would you, would you let me to step on your toes for just a second? Is that Okay. The reason I want to talk about it is because one of the things I've noticed in my generation is that the fruit of deconstruction in mass is leading people away from Jesus. I'm not saying that's everyone's journey, but what I'm watching that grieves my heart is people are leaving their faith in droves because they're wrestling with things and they're not finding the answers that they need. What I've learned is, is that Jesus is the foundation of truth. And we, we approach deconstruction, and I say we, I, I kind of uh, use this word, I, I, I identify with the generation that I live in, and many people in my generation, they approach deconstruction fairly violently, if I could be honest. 
And, and it's almost as if they take something as precious as their faith, and there's a lot of questions there. And so it seems that the common solution is just to take a sledgehammer to it and just see what happens. Now, I don't know about you, but if you take a sledgehammer to anything, the outcome is not going to be very good, amen? And I think a more appropriate approach to wrestling and questioning and in and, and our seek for truth is to do it a little more carefully. And, and, and the reason why I really believe that people are leaving the faith and, and they're having these experiences is because many people have adopted the framework of the culture, which is to find your truth. And that everyone in the room has their truth and their truth is kind of uh, uh, personal to them and you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. Um, but what we, what we mean when we say things like this, like find your truth, what we're really saying is what do you feel? What do you, what do you feel like? And that road leads to, to what do I feel? And then what have my experiences been? And then how does that shape my reality? And the issue with that speaking personally, is I've tried to build things on the foundation of my feelings, and it does not end well. Like, I don't want to build anything on the foundation of my feelings. It's like they say, feelings are a great friend, but they're a terrible master, amen? And so, we live kind of in what I would determine or, or, or define is almost this unreality. People are asking, what's real? Like, what is even real? Like, you think, you see things this way, you see things this way, and we live in this kind of unreality. And what I believe to be true is that Jesus wants to open our eyes to the reality of what is. And that is that he is ruling, and he is reigning, and he's better than we could have ever imagined. Amen? And so I, I want to, before we jump into the kind of meat of my message this morning, I want to just give you um, Dustin's keys, if you will, to, what, to, to how to not crumble while deconstructing. Is that, is that cool with you? Because here's the deal. I've, I've wrestled with, or I, I've walked through some significant times of what people would define as deconstruction in my own life. I could look back at a time in my life where I believe things about God that I do not believe about God anymore. Things that I, the ways that I saw God, ways that I saw people, ways that I saw community, ways that I saw myself, all of those things, I now would look back and say, oh my goodness, I do not know what I was doing. But, I, but, but, but I've found today that as I've wrestled with those questions, because God's not scared of questions, he's not scared of questions, as I've wrestled with them, what I found is, is that I've landed now more in love with Jesus, more in love with uh, a Bible that I was once very confused by, and, and it's become this, this solid foundation in my life. And so just really quick, two keys really quick. And, and the reason I'm saying this is because I really believe there may be a few people in here who just have some questions about God, maybe wrestling through some hard stuff. The first key that I'll give you to, to how not to crumble while deconstructing um, is that we all need an authentic encounter with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the truth. What I've found to be true about deconstruction is deconstruction is a revealer of substance. Wow. It's a revealer of what is. It is, a, it, it, is a, it is a revealer of what's not, but it's also a revealer of what is. And I can remember in seasons of my life where I was questioning so much about God. What do I believe about God? What do I believe about the end of the world? What do I believe about the Bible? What do I believe about social issues and justice and all of these different things? And I was wrestling with all of this stuff. And I could go back to moments in my life where I was really questioning who God was in these moments. And I would look back to encounters I had with Jesus. And I can remember in those encounters, I would say things to myself like, there is not a person in this world that can tell me that God's not real because of what, what I've just experienced. 
And when we encounter the reality of who Jesus is, it becomes a foundation when you get disappointed, when you get hurt by the church, when you experience trauma, which we all have, these very real things that make us question everything. We need the foundation of an encounter with Jesus that we could say, I don't know if anything else is real, but I know that he's real because I've seen him face to face. And I believe it's God's will that we would all have a foundation of that place of encounter that leads to a life-giving relationship with Jesus that becomes a foundation for our lives. The second, in my own personal journey, the second key that I've really used to to help me process through questions is, is the words that Jesus gives to Philip in John chapter 14. We just read the first verse. I want to read the entire passage, John 14, 6 through 9. You could turn there. These words that Jesus says to Philip have changed my life forever. Jesus answers Philip and he says, I am the truth, I'm I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse seven, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip asked this question, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. I love how Jesus responds. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What is Jesus saying to Philip? You see, Philip is asking the question, you've been talking about your Father. When are you gonna show us the Father? I don't know about you, but in my journey, I've had lots of questions. What is God like? How do you reconcile these two different truths? You read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you're like, oh my goodness, what is happening here? This passage, Jesus is getting very real with Philip. He says, you have questions, but I want you to know one thing. If you've seen me, you've seen God, period. Jesus is precisely what God has to say about himself. You see, Colossians 1 says this. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter one, if you look at verses one through three, it says, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Listen to this. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. You see, if you want to know what God looks like, you can look at the face of Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about sinners, look at who Jesus hung out with. If you want to know how Jesus, God feels about the sick, it says that Jesus went about healing all who were afflicted by the devil. If you want to know how God feels about you, read John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, but to save you. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And when I, I have questions from people all the time, I do college ministry on campus, and they're like, man, I... I really wrestle with your idea of God, but I love Jesus. And I'm like, well, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen my God. Because Jesus came to fix our broken thinking about who he really is. He didn't come simply to give us an upgrade in religion. He came to show us how wrong we really were about him and to say, I'm gonna show you what God looks like. And those two things, an authentic encounter with Jesus and understanding that when we've seen Jesus, we've seen God, will become a foundation for our deconstruction. And so I wanna encourage you, specifically young people in the room, if you're wrestling with questions, understand God's not scared of your questions. He's not. But if you're wrestling, take it seriously. And if you find Jesus, 
I promise you, he will reveal to you that God is much better than we could have ever imagined. So we're in this series, Jesus plus nothing in Advent, and it really is true because Jesus came to reveal to us the heart of a father to a broken, orphaned world who was stuck in bondage. He came to show you have all the rules, you have all the regulations. Like Joel was saying earlier, you know how to come to the temple and sacrifice the animal and do it just right, and the right person comes in and all of this stuff. But I'm coming to show you that it's literally all about me. It's all about me. And so for the next few moments, I want to just leave you with a few truths that Jesus came to reveal to us, how Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. And so if you're taking notes, write this down, point number one. I got lots of points, keys. I just switch them up. They're all points, but at first I gave you some keys, now I'm giving you some points. So here's some points. This is what Jesus came to reveal to us about God. The first one that I have for you is that religion is empty. Religion is empty. It doesn't work. Matthew 23, I want to read through this, this chapter. Jesus gets pretty straightforward with the religious elite of his day. I'm going to just jump through Matthew 23. It'll be up on the screen. I'm going to start in verse 13. These are Jesus's words to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the people who were the religious elite of the day, the people who essentially thought they had God figured out. This is what Jesus had to say. Starting in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. These are Jesus's words, not mine. And, and I'm going to warn you, this, this Jesus is not like surfer hippie Jesus, like Instagrammable cute Jesus. This is a Jesus who is coming hard against religious people who are keeping his children in bondage. You see, Jesus is passionate about setting people free. So he says to him, woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter, enter. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He loves this word. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is intense. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, you don't understand who I am, and you're leading other people into bondage as well. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. I was thinking about this. How crazy would it be if we just like tithed in spices, you know? <laughs> just brought like our, our spice cabinet, put it in the box. Bless those who have to count the offering. That would be rough. But he says, you, you, you tithe, you're doing a good thing. And he says, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He's essentially saying, listen, you, you, it's all about the outward appearance, but your heart is dead. You're not doing the things that are really on my heart. And then in verse 25, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup or, and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean as well. He goes on. In verse 28, he says, in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He goes on to call them snakes and vipers and all kinds of other crazy nicknames. But what I realize here is, don't you find it interesting that Jesus spent the most of his time with the outcast and with the fringes, and he rebuked the people who thought they knew him the best? And what I, what I realize in this passage is, is that many of these things that Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees over, 
is the exact thing that people I encounter on the street. It's, it's how they see God, which, which leads me to believe that many people have encountered religion, but not many people have encountered Jesus. And Jesus is coming and he's saying, listen, it's not about religion. It's not going to work. Our rules, cleaning yourself up before you come to God, it will never work. He came to fix our broken thinking about who God is. He reveals to us, God reveals to us in his son that, that God's actually nothing like we thought he was. He's so much better. He's not about outward appearances. He's about the heart. He's not into behavior modification. He wants real transformation so that you and I can live holistically from the heart that's been redeemed by God and overflow his goodness to the world around us. And so he teaches us that religion is, is empty. And when Jesus arrived, what we have to understand is that the people that he came to, his people, the people of Israel, they've been under this old covenant law for almost 1,400 years so for 1,400 years, they had left the slavery of Egypt and they entered into the slavery of the law. They were under bondage to the law. If you do good, you get blessed. If you do bad, you get cursed. Can you imagine for your entire lives living in this way? They spent 1,400 years seeing God through a veil, seeing through this broken lens, and they had, they had a, a greater awareness of God's judgment than they did his mercy, they saw God only as a master, not as a father. They were more concerned with the outward appearance than the heart. And this is that, that good branch that we've been talking about of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. It's try harder, do better, say the right things, act the right way, be a good Christian, be a good disciple, all of these things. But Jesus came to tell us that that is all a lie. You can't do good enough to earn God's pleasure He's pleased with you before you ever do a single thing. This is how God actually feels about us. So he comes to teach us that religion will never work and he dismantles it and he offers us pure and holy relationship with him. So the second point, these are points, not keys now. The second thing that God comes to reveal to us or Jesus comes to reveal to us about his father is that he's the God of love. And that he is love. And, and I know this is simple, but listen to me. We cannot get over the love of God. I, I hear people say, I know God loves me, but, and I'm like, listen, if there's a but at the end of that statement, you haven't experienced the fullness of his love. There is nothing else greater than the revelation that he is love. Look at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8. It says, beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does, not know, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Scripture teaches us a lot of things about God. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's just, he's righteous. But all of these things are just attributes about him. But the scripture doesn't say that God is loving. The scripture says God is love, which means at the core of who he is, his nature is love which means that everything he does filters through the character that he is the God of love. And so when people ask the question, well, yeah, I, I get it. I know God loves me, but what about his judgment? Right? We ask questions like that. What we have to understand is that everything God does and everything God has fl flows through the filter of his love. So God does have judgment, but it's aimed towards anything that would keep us from love. 
His judgment is not upon us. His judgment is upon the sin that tries to keep us from him. And so everything he does comes from this place of love. He is self-defined as agape love. And that word agape is so beautiful. It's not the kind of love that our culture teaches us. It's not feelings or when I'm in a good mood, I'll buy flowers. It's not that kind of love. It's a love that is focused solely on another person. It's the kind of love that is sacrificial here at the heart and always moving towards another. And so the God of love, he is self-defined as love, which means he is always moving towards you and me. And so if this God of love is self-defined as love, then what we have to understand is that this is the truth that the world needs to hear. I think about this often as I meditate, as we meditate on the love of God. And and Garrett, one of our college leaders here, leads our outreach. This guy crushes it up on the campus twice a week and and telling people about Jesus. It's incredible. I get to go with him every once in a while. And, And I think to myself, if these people could just understand how much God loves them, it would change everything. Because the love of God, it's not the simple, cute, like coffee cup bumper sticker kind of love. It's the kind of love that would come from your place in heaven to live amongst us. It's the kind of love that would look someone in the face while they're spitting in your face and putting a crown of thorns on your head and piercing your side, and you're not saying, God, would you please judge them? He's saying, God, would you please forgive them? They don't understand what they're doing. This is the kind of love that'll change the world. And people need to know that they're loved this way. People need to know that the perfect one Gave up his spot in heaven so that he could have a relationship with you. He loves you that much. Which leads me to point number three, and I'll close with this. Is that if he is love, then there's an object of his affection. And the third point is, is that if he is love, then your name is beloved. And I felt today so strongly that this truth wants to set people free in the room. That your name is beloved. When we think about John the Beloved, Joel talks about it often, and, and when he writes about him, himself in Scripture, he calls himself the one, that, the one that Jesus loved. Sounds really prideful, sounds really arrogant. It's not pride, it's, it's revelation. He knew the one thing that defines me is that I'm loved by God. Not that I love him, not that I do things for him, but that he loves me. The Lord showed me this vision as I was preparing for this, that there's a weapon against the enemy that he wants to give us, and it's a finger that's pointing in our chest saying, I'm the one he loves. Because when you understand how much he loves you, it changes everything. When you begin to recognize that my name is beloved, it changes everything. Psalm 139 It says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand in the earth. I want you to know today that his thoughts towards you are greater than the grains of sand throughout the entire earth. Zephaniah 3, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult, which means to spin over you with loud singing. This is how he feels about you. He's delighted with you. He's spinning over you, whatever that looks like. And he's singing over you. You are my beloved. I know this sounds simple, but I also know how hard it is to grasp this truth because many of us have wrestled with it. Many years in my life, before Jesus and after Jesus, I struggled with that reality. 
that I'm the beloved. Because I would say things to God like, God, if you knew what was going on in my heart, there's no way that I would be the apple of your eye. And I would tell people things. I would preach messages like, God loves you despite of you. He loves you in spite of who you are. I began to recognize that's not true. He doesn't love us in spite of who we are. He loves us for who we are. He is obsessed with us. And for many years, I walked okay with titles like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a disciple. I'm a leader. I'm a preacher. But wrestling with that truth that I am the beloved. Because that, 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 that truth began to make me uncomfortable. Anyone, anyone resonate with this? It's like, I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy to be the apple of his eye. And as I began to yield to that truth, I began to recognize that all of the other titles fade away and the one thing that defines me is that I'm the object of his affection. That will change your life. And so as the people of God, we have to recognize that what the world needs, scripture says in Romans 8, that the world is crying out, they're groaning and longing for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God which I believe to mean that the world is looking for people who can demonstrate we know who we are because we know that God loves us and begin to reflect that to the world and that's what leads the world to Christ. The world will not be won to Christ by beating them over the head with our doctrine of truth. The world will be won to Christ by leading them into an encounter with the truth himself and letting him begin to speak to them and say, you are my beloved, you are my beloved. So, He's our beloved. I want to offend. He's our beloved. We're his beloved. I want to end just with a story. It's one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. And it's John the Baptist and Jesus. And um, some of you guys have probably heard me share this, but I believe there's so much revelation about who God is and who we are in this story. Jesus is standing on the banks of the river when his cousin, John the Baptist, is baptizing people. And it says that when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next, what happens is, is he calls Jesus to the water. They have a very quick debate over who's supposed to baptize who. And uh, Jesus wins like he always does. And he says, no, John, you're supposed to baptize me in order to fulfill our righteousness. So what happens next is John the Baptist takes Jesus. He puts his head under the water. He pulls him up. It's the first time we see the Trinity in Scripture. It says, a dove, or the Spirit of God in the form of a dove begins to descend on Jesus. The voice of the Father speaks. Jesus is in the water, and the voice of the Father says this. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I love this scripture, and I love that it comes before Jesus ever did anything for God. I love that it came before his ministry. I love that Jesus had not worked a miracle yet. And he's saying, before you start doing this stuff, I want to make it very clear that your status as, uh, as beloved has nothing to do with what you can do for me. So he says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The next thing the spirit does is, it says the spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. This messes with our theology. I do not like this verse, but it's in there. The spirit leads him into the wilderness. For 40 days, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And at the end of the 40 days, it says that the enemy comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now I have to be really honest. If I'm Jesus and the enemy comes to me at the end of a fast and he's like, yo, make these rocks into Whataburger, I'm doing it right there. I'm, 
patty melt. I've been craving it for 40 days. I'm going to do it. But this is, this is the scheme of the enemy as it relates to the truth of who he is and the truth of who we are. The enemy will always try to get you to do something to prove who you say you are. If you are who God says about you, then do something to prove it. The problem with that is there's nothing we could ever do to prove his love. He, he loves us. And here's the key. The key to this whole thing is that the enemy comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. He left out one word, the narrative of Jesus, I mean, the narrative of the father and the narrative of Satan, there's one word difference. Because God did not say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I believe that the enemy was intentional because the last thing he wanted Jesus to remember in his temptation was that you're loved by God, that your name is beloved. And I just wanna encourage this this morning that if you're wrestling, if you're going through something, the greatest weapon you have against the enemy is not shouting and binding, all that stuff's good, but it's, it's to know that you're beloved. It's to know that you're the beloved of the Father. This morning, I just felt like there was an invitation to begin to believe the truth about what God says about you. And I, I sense this, I just felt like there's people in the room that you're gonna be activated. Like, I just feel like there's evangelists in the room that you have a calling to, to represent Jesus and it, you're gonna step into your destiny when you begin to recognize how God sees you. And how God sees you will begin to almost like refract as a mirror to the world around you and people will be like, I want what that person has because that person knows they're loved. That person knows that they're worthy. This is... This is my conviction, that as we think about the world and where the world is, and as we celebrate Advent and proclaim, proclaiming the goodness of God to the world around us, I, I really believe that my generation statistically is the most unchurched, they're leaving the church in droves. And I don't believe it's because they're uninterested in God. I believe it's because we, and I put myself in this included, that we may have handed them a wrong lens that they've been handed a lens to see God that was incorrect. And I believe that we, as the body of Christ, get to demonstrate to the world around us, he's better than you could have ever imagined. And he is obsessed with you. He's not tolerating you, he's in love with you. Would you stand with me this morning? I just wanna pray for us and then we're gonna open up the altars this morning. If you need ministry for anything, we'd love to pray for you. If you need healing or if you need just breakthrough in your life. But I, I felt specifically like God wanted to uproot some lies from people's minds that you've been seeing God almost through this veil or you've been wrestling to see God as good. Or maybe you're just wrestling with this self-condemnation of like, man, I just don't know if God loves me like he's talking about. And I think God this morning wants to encounter people with the truth. And so if the ministry team could come forward, and I'm just gonna pray for a moment and then we're gonna go back into worship. Would you just close your eyes with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to fix our broken thinking about who you are and that you're so much better than we could have ever imagined. God, I just pray that the bigness, the greatness of who you are would invade our lives and that we would say, oh my goodness, you're better than I could have ever imagined. 
God, that we would see you for who you are and that in turn we would see ourselves for who we are. I just, I just feel like when we were in pre-service prayer, someone was mentioning that they felt like healing was gonna come to people this morning in a way where it would take like months or years to fix some things that God with an encounter with his love this morning wanted to undo some stuff. So I just wanna ask you this morning, if you're wrestling in that place to come and let God meet you here, God, I ask that you'd pour out your spirit this morning in a new and fresh way that you would reveal the heart of God to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.